0: My hope is that this podcast will offer some encouragement, a few laughs, and even some hope for the future. This is After Four, and these are your stories. Hello, hello, and welcome to After Four, the podcast for InterVarsity alumni. I'm your host, John Steele, and whether you've been listening for some time now or you're just tuning in for the first time, I'm really glad you're here. Today, we're continuing on with our six-week series. How to be the post-college goat. We're exploring some top-level skills that you want to have locked in for getting a solid start to your life after college. Things like making the most of your 20s, finding the right church, nailing the interview, and being a great employee. If you haven't heard them, go back. You don't want to miss them. Today, though, we're jumping into our fifth and final topic, and it's a topic that lives in infamy. You love it, you hate it, you can't buy your train to almond milk mocha frappuccino with 25 pumps of caramel sauce and extra whipped cream on the side without it. That's right, it's money. Today and next week, I'll be joined by Michael Lopez, an InterVarsity alumnus from Harvard University who has 20 plus years of experience in the world of finance. This week, he's going to give us some incredibly practical tips for getting our financial footing and making wise investments. Next week, we're going to hear about investing ethically and understanding biblical foundations for our view of money. I absolutely loved interviewing Michael, and I'm so excited for you to get to hear from him over the next couple weeks. It's a great way to round out this series. Just a couple quick notes before we jump in, though. You're going to hear Michael talk about some specific numbers or percentages for things like the S&P and Bitcoin. Those are no longer up to date. They're actually even lower at the time of this recording. But Michael was spot on back in February and March when we had this conversation. So just a reminder to do some research for updated numbers before jumping into anything or making any value judgments. Okay, now that that's out of the way, how about I quit gabbing and move us on to the good stuff. Here is part one of my conversation with Michael. This one's for you, alumni. Hey, Michael, welcome to the podcast. I'm really glad you're joining us. Yeah, thank you. I'm definitely glad to, uh, to be joining as well. Are you ready to jump in here? Fantastic. Let's do that. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as a product of public school, I lived in the same place, same house, Glendale, California, northern Los Angeles. Never really went anywhere until after high school and went to the other side of the country. So I went to Harvard University. I studied economics. And while I was there, I sought out InterVarsity because a number of people that I went to church with growing up had gone to InterVarsity and I had heard about that. I didn't really know what the organization was, but knew I wanted to get involved in a Christian organization on campus. It's an absolutely fantastic experience. I was involved in a freshman Bible study, a year-long study of the book of Mark as well, which is very intense and fantastic. And I wanted to get more involved. And so I was invited to participate on leadership, started to lead Bible studies, Mark studies. And that's really helped how I approach Bible studies now. And then I did graduate school at the University of Melbourne and got my master's of applied finance. And while I was there, I also joined the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students. So the international intervarsity, which is fantastic.
0: So not only going from an Ivy League undergrad experience, which is, I imagine, a unique experience in and of itself, then to a grad experience that was also international. It's quite a change from one to the next and a bit different than what the majority of intervarsity alumni have experienced during their time in school.
1: The more that you get involved with God's world, you'll see how big and special it is.
0: My experience with InterVarsity was as a grad student, my first state school experience. And yeah, to be experiencing diversity of all kinds that I never got to experience back home. That was such an important part of my development. That was a vital experience for me, for sure.
1: There's so much that can be learned and some of it happens in the classroom. Yes. (laughs)
0: Some of it does. It's amazing the amount of learning that happens outside of the classroom, though. So then you said that you got your degree in economics. Did you continue on with economics in grad school?
1: So it took a branch of that field focusing on finance. All the schools do everything different at the University of Melbourne. They parse it into the theoretical and the practical. So the applied finance is more the practical these are how markets work, the instruments that are used, mergers and acquisition. And so we definitely had a great experience learning from professors from all over. They weren't all local Australians. We had some that visited from Israel and from India. It was a great experience.
0: So, being in the world of finance, were there particular things that you were anticipating for your life after college? Did it work out the way that you thought it would, or did it end up being easier, harder? What did that look like for you?
1: Great question. While I studied economics, I didn't quite know exactly what it was that I was going to end up doing. Something that I didn't know how to do was how to apply for a professional job. My mom was a teacher. My dad worked for the city of Glendale as a civil engineer, both government type jobs. So I was really the first person in my family to go out into private industry. One of the pieces of advice that my dad gave me was don't use a temp agency. And for anyone that's <laughs> listening, I want to let you know, that was not good advice. <laughs> that absolutely not good advice. I used a temp agency. And got experience in a number of different companies. But ultimately, my first long-term assignment was in the mailroom of an accounting company.
0: Ah, yes. The mailroom.
1: Yes. (laughs) And it was probably one of the most humbling things that I did. Here I am, a four-year degree in economics opening mail. I did that for a number of weeks I was going to look for another position, but the partner of the office actually created a position for me in this accounting firm. So I had no accounting experience at all. And that was my first professional job was doing accounting. Having been there a couple of years, I ended up getting an interview and got hired on at Merrill Lynch as a financial advisor. And that's really where I started in the practical realm of investments. Unfortunately, my timing's not very good. I started in March of 2000 at the height of the dot-com craze, and I started just about the top of the market and ended up riding it all the way down. My friend from college, Mary Neighbor, she started at Merrill Lynch at the end of 2001, 2002 at the bottom of the market and rode that up and was very successful And years later, after I graduated grad school, is when she invited me to then join her in founding this company that were part of Sage Stone Wealth Management. And it's definitely been a great blessing being able to work with her.
0: So then you have 20 plus years of experience. I'd love to spend some time digging into this wealth of knowledge that you have. For our alumni who are listening to this and thinking about what does it look like for me to start investing, are there particular things that someone should have in order before they start investing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Investing is one aspect of your overall financial experience. And really the thing that I encourage people to start out with is a budget. You need to create a personal budget. And I encourage everyone to start with your income. Expenses go second. Oftentimes we may think the opposite. What can I buy for myself? You know, start with income. And then when it comes to the expense side of things, you definitely want to focus on the big mandatory ones first. Everyone has to pay taxes. Anyone who's gone to college may have student loans. Paying off your debts is very important. Rent, utilities, focus on those first. And then from that, any of the discretionary types of things, you know, going out with your friends, movie tickets, the types of things that perhaps in junior high and high school, and perhaps even college, is what you think finance is. How do I spend money on things that I like? And yes, that's definitely fine, but these other things come first. Once you have that framework. You also want to be thinking about not just what you need now, but also thinking about the future. Pay yourself first. Allocate some of your funds to savings. And when I talk about savings, savings isn't one thing, savings is many things. The first saving that you should really focus on is an emergency fund. You want at least six to nine months worth of expenses in case something unexpected happens. If you lose your job, if you're in a car crash or if there's a fire or something that is just outside of your normal experience, you want to be able to weather that storm. Definitely want to build that fund first. After that, you want to focus on setting up funds for retirement. And you want to do that as soon as possible. Setting up funds for retirement is not something that you do in your 50s, your 40s, or maybe late 30s. That's something that you do as soon as possible. We actually. Do the math and we can show examples that someone who starts contributing to their retirement in their early 20s, and if they were to go until the age of 30 and then not contribute to their retirement again, will do better than someone who starts when they're 30 and contributes till they're age 65. Starting early matters. Why does that work? That's from one of the most tried and true principles in all finance, compound interest, compound returns. Whatever you earn and whatever return you get on that, the next year you get a return on the return and then a return on the return on the return. And it just multiplies.
0: It's the thing that kicks you in the butt with student loans when you're not paying them. And then it's the thing that sets you for retirement when you're putting it into an account. (laughs) Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Even just small little changes can have big effects in the end.
0: So it sounds like things to get in order first, you're talking about start with your income. How much do you actually have coming in that there is a number and you should know that number? And then- You should start with the immovable things. You need to pay your rent. You need to have money for your groceries. So there's some of those things that are non-negotiable. And then you've got some of your fund money, your discretionary money as well built in there. You've got your emergency fund. Then that's when you can start thinking about long-term savings, long-term investment, and talking to someone like you, Michael, to get something like that established.
1: And something that I think we all experience is that things are not necessarily that lockstep. We can be going after a number of these goals at the same time. Many of us, as we enter the workforce, will be working for companies that may have a retirement plan. And something that is super important if anyone works for a company that has a retirement plan, if they offer any type of match, you absolutely Have to, as soon as you are eligible, contribute to your retirement plan at minimum to what that match is. And that's because that match is free money that you only get if you participate. So you don't want to leave that money on the table. You absolutely want to accept that. So, anyone, if it's your first job out of college or if it's a job which you just got now, if they offer a match for the 401k, contribute.
0: Now, Michael, knowing that so many students are coming out of school with student loan debt, are you an advocate for crushing your debt, get that out of the way, or would you still say the match comes first and then what's left go towards paying extra for your student loan? How does that factor into some of this process?
1: Absolutely. And that's where, as we were saying, is that we can pursue multiple goals at the same time. So, paying off student loan debt is something that you should definitely have as a plan. But I would not encourage anyone to say, well, I'm not going to contribute to retirement until I pay off my student loan. You really want to take advantage of those compound returns over time as soon as possible at the same time as you're working on paying your student loan. And that's just one type of liability. Many of us are also going to have um, other types of loans, particularly like mortgage. And you have other goals that you're pursuing at the same time as that mortgage. But yet we can talk general principles, but any one person's particular experience is going to be unique to them. So in general, you want to be contributing to retirement at the same time as paying off your student loan debts and your mortgage.
0: That makes a lot of sense. That's really helpful to start laying out that system and to know that there's some flexibility in there, but that these are good principles to be in pursuit of. So then somebody wants to look into investing, they're ready to add this in as part of their financial story. What do you look for in someone that's giving you investment advice and helping you build that portfolio?
1: So. At various different stages in our lives, there are things that it makes sense for us to do on our own. And then there are times where it makes sense to seek the advice of someone else. And for most of us, as we're starting out, when our situations are simpler, we can definitely do quite a bit of that on our own. And again, with anyone that has access to a 401k through their employer, the 401k plan should have a representative who comes out every so often, usually about once a year. And that person is being hired by your employer to provide you with investment advice on that plan. I definitely encourage anyone to go to those meetings. Even if you've been to that meeting previously, things undoubtedly will have changed from the last time that you were there. And you should definitely go and pick their brain because that is a service which is being provided. That's definitely a really good place to start. Now, As your investment situation becomes more complex, as your income grows, as your assets grow, then you may need to look beyond the more readily available resources. So when it comes to looking for an investment professional, you really want someone who has both experience and also education in terms of what principles actually work. There's plenty of people out there who will have their particular get-rich-quick schemes, and those schemes work very well for the person that's pushing them. They <laughs> don't work well for the person that they're trying to get. There is this old Signed Life skit where they were doing this fake infomercial. They like, said, and we will show you how to get people to send you $29.95. It's all in this book how to get people to send you (laughs) $29.95 and it's all yours for (laughs) $29.95. Yeah. So when it comes to seeking the advice, you want someone who is going to be talking about the basic principles. You want someone who talks about asset allocation, which is how you portion your investments between stocks, bonds, cash, alternatives for some. That is by far going to determine your experience more than anything else. So how much you put towards stocks is going to have a bigger impact than which specific stock do you buy. You also want someone who's going to be talking about diversification. You don't want to put all of your investment dollars into one place. If it's your serious money and if it crashes or burns, you're going to be in trouble. So you definitely want someone who thinks in terms of diversification. Investing across a number of different asset classes, large companies, mid sized companies, small companies, international, very important. And within all of this, you also want someone who is going to be listening to your risk tolerance. Can you stomach market drops? For anyone that's looking at the market now, the S&P 500, which is a barometer of the largest 500 companies in the United States, is down over 10% so far this year. For some people, they look at that and they're like, wow, that is devastating. If I lose 10% of my 401k, I'm done. I can't retire. For others, like 10%, we've seen that. It's actually pretty normal. And if you look at that and you say, you know what? That means everything's on sale. It's time to buy. (laughs) Your risk tolerance is going to be very different from the first person, right? And so having someone who listens to your risk tolerance talks about risk and when it's appropriate to take risk and when to avoid or to manage that risk. And then lastly, time frame matters. What are your needs in the short term versus the medium term versus the long term? And you're going to invest those funds differently. Anything that you need in one to two years, you don't want to subject those assets to wild fluctuation. Whereas assets you're not going to need for 10, 15, 20 years, like retirement, you can absolutely invest in things that are more volatile into equities and things such that if the stock market drops 10%, you can say, that's fine. I don't need those funds for another 20 years or so. And I have confidence from history that those funds are going to make up that 10% drop and significantly more over that time. So when you're looking for an investment professional, you want to make sure that those basic principles are being covered and adhered to, because that is what successful investors do. They know what works. They're students of history while at the same time also being open to different opportunities.
0: So along those lines then, because it feels incredibly relevant right now in the financial world around us, what are you learning and experiencing so far with things like cryptos, NFTs, digital assets in general? I mean, they seem to be everywhere. Are digital assets here to stay? Are they a wise investment? Are they even legitimate? What are your thoughts about that?
1: Yes, take everything that you have, sell it, and put it all on red. <laughs> yeah,
0: put everything in Dogecoin. <laughs> right, exactly.
1: Yeah, so this is a very similar conversation that was being had when I started with Merrill Lynch in 2000, and it involved something called the internet. Something that I had just gotten exposure to my sophomore year in college, this idea of the World Wide Web and these things you could put into a computer that actually used that at symbol. No one ever used that at symbol before. and Now you see it everywhere. So that question was relevant then as well. Internet, is it a fad? Is it the new hot thing? Is this going to change our life? What is this? And we definitely see from our experience that it was really all of that. It was something that was brand new and very powerful, and it also gave birth to a number of fads. I remember talking with someone who said, there's this company, but they haven't ever earned any profits. They're making losses all the time, and they sell books. How can you make money selling books? So I'm not sure if we should even really look at Amazon. (laughs) And then at the same time, also having conversations. You see that Super Bowl ad, pets.com? That is it. That is the new thing. Yeah. And so we actually know from looking back that both of those were existing in the same space and had very different experiences. There, there will even be people who don't even know what Pets.com was. Everyone knows what Amazon is. So from that perspective, digital assets, are they here to stay? Most likely, most likely digital assets are going to continue in some form or another. But most likely, it's going to be very different than what we see today. So this is a new space where things are really happening fairly quickly. There's lots of innovation, which is good. There's also going to be winners and losers, which is part of the experience. Now, are they a wise invest? That's a trickier question, because when we're talking about investments and we're talking about wisdom, you really have to understand what they are. Anyone that hears the term cryptocurrency, that in and of itself is a misnomer because it has the word currency in it. And something that we know about these digital assets, particularly the most common ones, the Bitcoin, Ethereum, even Dogecoin, are in fact not currencies. They do not have the qualities of a currency. Their value fluctuates wildly. And a currency is something that you look at that has stable value. So you look at a stable value like the U.S. dollar is very different from the currency of Turkey, which right now is going through a big upheaval. And that currency is destabilizing. These crypto currencies are, in fact, not stable. They fluctuate in price significantly. So just first thing off, cryptos, digital assets, yes. Currencies, no. And there's some different players in the space in terms of stablecoins and things like that. And so we may see other developments. There's a big experiment that's happening now. Two very different attitudes towards these things where China has banned all Bitcoin from their shores. El Salvador has made Bitcoin a reserve currency of the country. Who's going to be right? Who's going to be wrong? stay tuned. That's where we are now.
0: Those seem like some big bets.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. But something that is very apparent about the cryptocurrency market is that it is unregulated. There are no rules outside of whatever rules that they impose on themselves. There is no watchdog. There is no regulatory agency that is going to police this, that is going to help if something goes wrong. So it's very much this Wild West type of atmosphere. And that's very different from the investment industry that I am in. We are highly regulated. We are regulated by the SEC, by FINRA, which are organizations that have rules and we have to abide by those rules. And if we are not compliant, then we can get in trouble to the tune of fines, losing licenses, even going to jail. So you have people like the Bernie Madoffs of the world who are flaunting these rules and who have now lost their freedom because of that. There is nobody that is looking over the cryptocurrency. So if you want to get involved in these cryptocurrencies, NFTs, other digital assets, feel free to do so. But I would recommend only use money that you're willing to lose because you very well may.
0: That's incredibly helpful to know that you're not only playing with the risk of just the bottom could fall out of them and you lose whatever money you've invested, but just that... There's nobody regulating it. So it would seem that there's really nobody to enforce whatever rules you think might be there as far as, you know, actually getting paid at the end of the day.
1: Exactly. There are players in those spaces who are employing schemes that had been used before regulation was implemented in the investment industry. Things like pump and dump schemes, front running where they will buy a currency and then they'll advertise, hey, you all need to get into this currency. And so everybody flocks in that currency. And they're more than happy to sell this cryptocurrency to them, make their profit and leave. And those that came in are left holding this thing that may not have the value that they thought that it did. And those are things which you're not allowed to do in the well-regulated stock market. But people are absolutely doing that now in these cryptocurrency markets. And so when it comes to this idea about investing and what is an investment, is this a legitimate investment? There's really a debate about worth. Is there intrinsic value in these assets? Or is this entire thing just working off of what we call the greater fool theory? The greater fool theory is that you're just hoping that someone else it's going to pay you more than you bought this. It's worthless. But they're a greater fool than you are. And so if that's the reason that you're getting involved in it, it's a house of cards that's the only winners are going to be the ones who get out right before it falls. Is there intrinsic value? This is something that my colleague Mary Maber and I have debated and we're still debating there is some intrinsic value in the technology behind some of these cryptocurrencies. The blockchain technology, that is something that is innovative and that most likely we're going to see building on top of this. So we're probably going to see blockchain in a number of different areas of industry, areas of our lives beyond what we see now. Is that enough to justify a valuation of 65,000 per Bitcoin? The market doesn't think so now because Bitcoin's dropped in half since the fourth quarter of last year. Very unregulated market, very volatile. So everyone that's involved in the space is really trying to get that figured out.
0: Either way, it sounds like digital assets proceed with caution and don't invest anything you're not willing to just totally lose. <laughs> Certainly. Sheesh, this is some good stuff. There's so much that I appreciate about what Michael has shared so far, but I want to take it back to his very first piece of advice. Start with a budget. It wasn't in the episode, but Michael told me when we were chatting, if you don't have a budget physically written down somewhere, or if it's not created in an app of some sort, if you can't refer to it regularly, then it's not a budget. It's just a thought experiment. And I will say from personal experience, having and using a budget has been one of the most powerful tools that my wife and I have used for making the most of the money that we have. It was vital for getting out of debt, for saving for a car, for a house, for vacation, for children, just for making sure the bills were paid every month. Whether you're fresh out of college or looking into retirement, whatever stage of life you're in while you're listening to this episode, if you aren't regularly following a solid budget, please, please, please take this wise counsel from Michael and start today. You will not regret it. Thanks, Michael, for joining us today. All of this is incredibly helpful. You're helping us think wisely about how to set up our financial future, and that is a huge blessing. I'm grateful for you, and I'm glad that we get you for one more episode. Make sure you all come back next week for part two as we talk about ethical investments, biblical foundations for investments, and how to use our money as part of building God's kingdom. Make sure you follow or subscribe on your favorite platform, turn on notifications so you can catch the episode as soon as it drops, and don't forget to be a pal and share it with your friends. And hey, don't forget about our SpeakPipe service either. If you enjoy what you're hearing or if you have a story to share, follow our link in the show notes or go to speakpipe.com slash after four pod and leave us a message. You just might get to hear yourself on a future episode. And one last thing, just a reminder that after next week's episode, we're going to take a break for a few weeks, but I wanted to let you know our first episode back in July, we're going to have a very special guest joining us. He's kind of a big deal, but I think I'm going to leave you in suspense for a bit longer. I'll give you a hint, though. Just like Michael, he is also a Harvard University alumnus. Any guesses? If so, hit us up on SpeakPipe. Okay, that's all for now. Until next week. See you in the after, alumni.